Welcome to the Empowered Curiosity Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Lee, and we are here to explore the ideas, stories, and experiences of what it means to be a curious and empowered human. We will talk about how to anchor into your relationship to intimacy, emotional alchemy, embodiment medicine, and conscious relationships. On this podcast, my guests and I will be sharing wisdom about coming back home to the truest version of yourself. Hello, friend, and welcome to the Empowered Curiosity Podcast. I am coming at you from a different environment for me. So I'm sitting in an Airbnb in Washington State because I'm on the road right now. I have left Santa Cruz where I've spent the last month or so. I'm on my way going up to Vancouver, British Columbia, where I'll spend the next several months. And I am taking the long, meandering, flowy way. I recorded this conversation with Zach Beach before I left Santa Cruz. And I've been thinking about this idea of connection ever since that conversation. And then coincidentally, I got to hit the road. And the road is where I feel the most at home. If I can be blaring my Moana soundtrack with my hand out the window and my hair all over the place and little Ruby, my little road sidekick next to me. That's my happy place. I take the meandering way because I love hitting up nature and I tend to sleep out of my car. I do car camping and it's actually a little bit of a luxury that I'm checked into an Airbnb right now. I've been contemplating a couple things when it comes to connection. The first thing is I've been meeting the most lovely people while I've been on the road. And I've noticed that we have a tendency to ask two questions when we first meet people. We have a tendency to ask, where are you from? And what do you do? And that's been an interesting space for me to explore because those two questions are kind of nebulous for me right now because I what do I do is I am an emotional alchemy coach which is something that I made up and I'm a podcaster and so people get a little bit confused about that but also where am I from is a little bit nebulous because I split my time between Vancouver and Las Vegas and Santa Cruz and everything in between. I find that people react either with curiosity or a bit of unease. What I've noticed in myself is that those questions, while they do matter, what I'm most interested in is they're two different questions is who are you and why are you? And what I mean by that is the who are you is a little bit difficult to answer. I think that that's a journey that we all have to take in our lifetime. And for some of us, it's going to take a full lifetime. And it's really about who are you underneath all those layers of conditions and stories and narratives that have kept you safe? Who are you when you first came into this life? And it's that idea of connection, of connection of knowing deeply and inherently the part of you that maybe has no words. 
that maybe cannot be encapsulated in language. And that's the part that I get really curious about when I meet new people. And then the why are you is not about what do you do for work and why do you do that for work, but really what is your purpose? What is your Tao? What is what makes you feel aligned? And oftentimes that journey asks us, throws circumstances at us that pulls us away from our purpose so that we can really fully embody what that purpose is and know that from a space of not having been connected to it. And so when you find that alignment, when you find that purpose, when you find that Tao, it just feels like a coming home. I think the other way I've been thinking about connection has been, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. So I spent yesterday afternoon on this beautiful lake in the Olympic Peninsula. I was the only person on this lake. It was right off of the freeway, but still felt really secluded and quiet and I'm hanging out on a log and just dangling my feet over the edge and I'm laying back, looking up at the sky, and I'm feeling my breath. My breath is just naturally slowing down. I'm feeling my nervous system starting to settle into the parasympathetic. I am feeling how breath just is able to just sink into the lower depths of my belly without me even trying. My diaphragm is stretching. It's all this instinctual thing that happens in my body when I'm in parasympathetic. That's that rest, digest, feed, and breed mode. And I recently finished a book called Breath by James Nestor. And it's a really lovely book. It takes us through why breath is so important, all the physiological things that happens when we're able to access breath. And he posits that humans have forgotten how to breathe. And so it's changed our anatomy, it's changed our physiology, and so his big thing is trying to get people to breathe again. My take on this is, let's dig a little deeper. We actually already know how to breathe. That's not anything that needs to be taught to us, it's not anything that we have lost, in quotation marks. What we have lost, though, is our ability to sink into our parasympathetic on a regular basis. And so our modern culture prioritizes and emphasizes and validates us living in sympathetic. It's really into grind culture. It's really into hustling. It's really into efficiency and getting shit done, essentially. And when we are living in that state, our sympathetic nervous system gets turned on and it's going to prioritize other things other than breath and other than regenerating your cells and healing your cells from a deep cellular level. And so I don't think we've lost connection with breath. We've lost connection with our ability to sink into our nervous system. So I think that a lot of times the way we talk about breath work in the personal development world is it's almost like a biohacking technique. And I never find that biohacking is really sustainable. This is a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario because we do know that breath does trigger that parasympathetic response. And so if you're in a fight or flight state, you can actually shift yourself and downregulate into a parasympathetic state through breath. But also, 
I think what we need to do is we need to validate space. In this episode, Zach calls it the sacred pause. We need to validate inefficiency sometimes because in that inefficiency, there's creativity. We need to have more value in rest and regeneration because that's also where your capacity to step into your purpose and alignment comes from. And so when you are living from this space, then you don't need to biohack using breath. Breath comes naturally. And so I think that what breathwork and biohacking can sometimes feel like is it feels a little bit like bypassing. Like we want all of the physiological benefits like the lower blood pressure and the lower cholesterol and all these biomarkers that James Nestor talks about in his book so beautifully. But it's almost like we want all of that without changing our lives. You know, it's like we're trying to bypass and we're trying to get all those physiological benefits without doing that actually deeper and harder work of slowing down and incorporating the parasympathetic into your life. And so I started asking myself, you know, what blocks us from that? And what I came up with is when we live our lives from a place of should, you know, we have an expectation of what our life should look like, what our career should look like, what our family should look like, what relationships should look like, what schooling should look like. When we live our lives from a place of should, we get pulled away from that purpose, that Tao, that deep knowing of who we are and why we are when we are first born. I am curious about what comes up for you when you hold this question in mind? What are you actively trying to release the should story about? Is it your health? Is it your career? Is it, you know, your relationship? And what could happen if you actually let that should story go? So if you feel inspired, I would love to hear from you. Shoot me an email, cat at empoweredcuriosity.com and let me know how this question landed for you. Or you can DM me on Instagram, which is going to be at Empowered Curiosity. Now, I am so thrilled to share this conversation with you. I had a chance to interview author, poet, yogi, love coach, Zach Beach. And Zach's work is based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Really what he's committed to doing is he's committed to building a world based on unconditional love and connection. And so that's what we talk about in this conversation. He does that through educating by being a yoga teacher, using his words as a poet. He's also a podcast host and a writer. He's the founder of the Heart Center Love School. He's published several books, two of them being poetry collections, and he regularly leads transformational retreats, workshops, and teacher trainings around the world. And his online writings have been so inspiring. They've appeared in websites like the Huffington Post, the Elephant Journal, and Mind Body Green. And he has also published his poetry in publications like the October Hill Magazine. 
He hosts the Learn to Love podcast, of which I had the honor of being a guest on, and that podcast is really a guide about bringing more love into your life. In this episode, we talk about all these nuanced aspects of connection, how we use the body as a portal to spirituality, trying to understand the difference between reaction versus response, and as I shared before, he brings in this terminology that I hadn't really heard of before, and I love it, is the importance of the sacred pause in communication, in connection. And so I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I think that you're going to get so much out of it. Before we get into that, I would love to invite you into the Remembrance community. It is a brand new online offering that I am opening up. All the information is on my website, empoweredcuriosity.com. If you get a lot of insight and a lot of value from these podcast episodes, think of it as the deeper step in. And so once a month, you get a live group call with me where I teach you something. Um, This month is all about the nervous system. So we talk about cultivating flexibility in the nervous system and being able to shift into the sympathetic and parasympathetic as it is needed and as it is appropriate. It's a conversation that I feel passionate that everybody needs to understand about their bodies because we have so much shame wrapped up in how our bodies react under moments of stress. Once a month, you also get a live group coaching call with me. And so you get to come in, join the community, bring your challenges and struggles to the table, have us work through it together, have the group help you co-regulate and get back into a place of feeling safe again. And from there, magic happens. The community aspect of this offering is so important because As humans, we have lost touch with this particular medicine. And I've seen this happen over and over again. When we gather in communities, there is something magical that happens. You are able to unravel and untangle these deep, deep trauma knots that you might have been holding onto for I don't know how many years. And when you bring that to the light, when you bring that to the surface to be witnessed and held, and you allow yourself to be held in that vulnerability, that is just the deepest form of medicine that we have as humans. So again, all the information on that beautiful offering is on empoweredcuriosity.com, and I can't wait to see you there, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Zach Beach. Welcome to the Empowered Curiosity Podcast. I have got Zach Beach here and I had a little bit of a ping because as I was on your website, Zach, I was like, I know this face. (laughs) And it turns out we went through a sex information, sex positive training way, way back in the day, probably like 10 years ago at this point. So it's really good to reconnect with you um, in this roundabout way in in the podcasting world. So welcome to the show. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I remember, so it was San, San Francisco Sex Information and their sex educator training. And it was a really wonderful program. And that was a long time ago, but small world. And it's mm-hmm. awesome to reconnect with you. Yeah. So I was doing a little bit of digging and research before we hopped on this call. And, you know, I do like to keep these conversations pretty free flowing, but as I was looking at your content and, and sort of trying to take a wide angle perspective of like what to chat about, I feel like so many of the things that you talk about on your podcast, um, in your poetry, in your yoga training, like it all goes back to connections. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to just jam with you about connections specifically about um, the difference between being able to self-regulate and co-regulate with other people and what the difference is and how we can do that in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we'll just nerd out about the nervous system. We'll talk about connection. We'll talk about intimacy and we'll, we'll sort of get into that. How's that sound? That sounds wonderful. You know, as I'm a writer and a poet and I'm always like trying to find the perfect word for things. And so often I'm like, there's so many words that we could use to describe the same situation and each takes its own flavor Mm -hmm. like in general i think of my work in the world as being about love Mm -hmm. right and then people like what is love well love is about connection Mm -hmm. and then they're like how do you explore connection and i'm like well one really beautiful way is through yoga Mm -hmm. what does yoga mean it means union unity connection all right so (laughs) it all comes back to the same thing yeah i love it too because it's like i feel like i've had conversations with three-year-olds like this where like they keep asking you <laughs> why? Why? why yeah exactly <laughs> and then you end up getting into these like deep conversations with toddlers <laughs> about life because there is this just like innate curiosity um with little ones and I think that that weaves its way through your work as well so um that's something that that you're the perfect person to have this conversation with <laughs> oh yeah kids are amazing teachers <laughs> absolutely so i i think let's start out with like the importance of connecting to self and and my assumption here is that the conduit the the modality for you is going to be through yoga um so can you share a little bit about like why that feels so important to you, why that connection to self, body, you know, the core of you, um, like what that feels like, what that resonance is like. Excellent question. And it's an excellent inquiry. Um, And a lot of it just starts with like where most people are in their lives and the culture that we were brought up with and that we live in a very cognitive centric society. Mm-hmm. Like when one famous guru was asked to describe Western civilization, he described them us as being lost in thought, mm-hmm. right? We are stuck in our minds, believing everything that we think. And the mind can be a wonderful tool. And it's obviously the big um, catalyst for technological and societal progress. However, there's other dimensions to our being. And an amazing thing begins to happen in our lives when we do begin to travel below our shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, along the way, of course, we meet our heart, that source of love and compassion and understanding and kindness. But then we just get into our body. And to me, one of the most beautiful things about getting into our bodies is it does connect us to the rest of the world. Like we can be caught up in our thoughts and we can notice our emotions, but the one gateway 
between our experience and the world is through the body, is mm-hmm. through our senses. We mm-hmm. take in this world. It's this like semi-permeal mem- membrane that our body is um, that separates our inner space from our outer space. And by diving deep into the body, that's when we absolutely discover this sense of aliveness and connection and, and feeling and beingness with all things that is. So this is the path to me that we like walk as human beings is dropping out of our separated, isolated sense of self or ego um, to discover a connection, not only to ourselves, but to all beings. And as the saying goes, the only way out is through. And by it's almost a paradox, but by deepening the connection to our own experience on all levels, mind, body, heart, soul, and spirit, um, we in turn connect to all things. I don't think I'd ever heard of, like, had it phrased to me in exactly the way that you said it, which is like the gateway to connection to others is is through the self and through the body, and that resonates so deeply with me because, you know, it's it's a very Eastern way of thinking of it, I, I suppose is the, like, I don't love that terminology, but it is more of an Eastern way of thinking about things. And, you know, we are so deeply connected and in, in our first way of exploring the world is through our bodies, mm-hmm. you know, and it's this weird thing that happens in our, in our modern culture where, we are inherently born with this instinctive need and this instinctive craving to explore the world through the somatic experience of our body. And then as we get older and older and as we layer on conditions and survival strategies and ways that we, you know, ways that we find love, trust and belonging in the world, it's sort of like we get shoved into the brain you know it's like we 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 create these Love that stories imagery get shoved into our brain <laughs> yeah um and and then the path to spirituality i'm finding for many people is just really about reconnecting to that inherent sense of somatics and self that you already know how to do so it's more of a remembrance than than a training Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we obviously came into this world via our bodies. Um, And you brought up Eastern philosophy, which is great, because you probably have heard that Buddhist quote that the Buddha basically said the body is the gateway to enlightenment. Not just like a gateway that you can choose from many, but the Mm -hmm. gateway to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And it is incredible how cut off cut off most people are from their bodies and their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first things we teach in yoga is literally how to breathe. Mm-hmm. I have beginner students all the time who aren't not breathing in the right way. Like this most fundamental aspect of our experience that of course is intimately tied to our stress response, to our uh, nervous system response is the breath. And many people do not even know like how they breathe. Like mm-hmm. if you ask the random person off the street, like what muscles are involved in your breathing? Mm-hmm. Like when you do, you know, expand your lungs, what is happening in your body? They don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is funny, like, yeah, what, we have we do live in a cognitive cognitive centric society but it's still very interesting what's left out of the mm. things that we were uh, brought up in mm-hmm. learning in school and our in our quote unquote education mm-hmm. and by and large most people do kind of treat their body as like a tool or like a machine 
rather than like consciously inhabit their bodies. Yeah. And you might have heard that that poem that's quoted to a, a Spanish speaker. And he says like the church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. Advertisements say the body is a business and the body says I am a fiesta. <laughs> <laughs> love that. And I love that. It was like, you probably speak Spanish too. Did you know that? But like, as soon as we get tapped into our body, it becomes a fiesta. It's just this rich array of, sensory experience that we have mm-hmm. available to us at all moments at all times mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i love that too because it's like that is the conduit of like how we play hmm. you know like think about all the things that we i mean i i mean i get caught up in in the vortex thinking of you know why does my body not work in the way that i want it to you know Mm -hmm. why do i feel so tight why do i feel so stiff and you know like getting really frustrated with my body but when i just take a moment and like think about all the things that i get to do you know like all the amazing food that i get to eat because um i have a body you know hugs that i get to experience sex just moving through the world and feeling the sand beneath my feet like just everything is is experienced through the body and you know when we cut ourselves off and you know when we shove ourselves into brain space we we are not privy to those experiences and we can't quite touch into those experiences in in the same way um and I think that one of the the reasons why we manifest is to have these these types of somatic experiences that you know we wouldn't be able to have if we were just you know a bug. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like these are temples, right? These bodies, like yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm not. You know, it might be fun to be a leaf, like to be reincarnated as a leaf. But like, you know, the leaf doesn't get to dance. It doesn't get to sing. It doesn't get to, uh, you know, connect with other leaves necessarily in the same way that we do. Um, there's that quote. I want to say it's from a, a James Joyce novel. And it basically is like, Mr. Duffy lived a few feet away from his body. Mm. And that is true. Like we don't, you know, many people's... Um, relationship to their body is a very challenging one Mm -hmm. um it doesn't work the way that they want it to you know many people would work would work 20 hours a day if they could but then their body protests many people um don't have a good relationship to like food and then the thing that becomes their body Mm -hmm. and in the same respect like we're all always often told how important it is to be present like to be in the present moment to be here now the power of now and what i find people often forget to say is that being present is not some like abstract spiritual like idea that we're trying to attain it's actually one of the most simplest things that we can do and all you have to do to be present is to be in your body Mm-hmm. is that it's the mind that has an imagined future and laments on the past, but the body exists in the now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your body is breathing in the now, your heart is beating in the now, you're moving in the now. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. all you have to do to be present is just to feel. You know, just walk on the earth and feel your feet kissing the earth, as mm-hmm. Thich Han would say. Feel the, uh, feel the shirt on your body, feel the mm-hmm. air across your skin. Mm-hmm. Um. I want to say it was 
Thomas Merton who said that like our bodies know that they belong, but it's our minds that make us homeless. And so that is a huge part of the spiritual path is returning home to the body, to these temples that we are in. Yeah. So on that line of thinking, you know, the idea of presence being in the sensations of the body, how would you speak to somebody who is so uncomfortable in their body, whether that is because of physical pain or because they don't like the particular shape that their body is in Mm. because they don't have a good relationship to nourishment, um, you know, whatever that complicated relationship with the body could be, um, how, like, what's a good entry point in your experience of just being able to accept and, and be Mm. here in the now? Yeah, it's a lovely question. And the entry point in the situation that you're describing is the difficulty. (laughs) Like people think and often say that like, Oh, if only I I could, if this happened in my life, then I could be really be present. Right. (laughs) Then I could really meditate. Right. If only like I wasn't in pain that right now, then I could find peace and relax. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But when we talk about being present, we're not just talking about being present to the good things in our life. Yeah. Right. That's easy. That's almost too easy. Like if you're just sitting on top of a cliff on a beautiful day and the sun is shining, it's the world's easiest task to be present. Mm-hmm. But to me, spirituality is not about simply attaining higher states, although that can be an important component of it. It is about increasing our capacity to be with what is, both the good and the bad, what the Buddhists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So if we are experiencing difficulty or resistance, our task in being present is to be present to those difficulties and to those resistance um, rather than running away from it, which is like the first thing that we do, right? Like we wake up, like we often think that we're, seeking happiness in life. But when you do look at most people's MO, it tends to be just running from one state of dissatisfaction to the next. (laughs) All right. You wake up and you're tired. So what do you do? You have a cup of coffee, right? A cup of coffee makes you jittery. So then, you know, maybe you smoke a little weed to like take the edge off and then, then you're hungry and then it gives you the munchies and then you start eating and then it makes you tired again. You're back to sleep, right? It's just moving from one state of dissatisfaction to the next. Um, rather than just like sitting with it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lovely story about like two monks who are just walking in the forest. And as with many stories, there's a younger monk and the older disciple. And then the younger monk says, teach me about the nature of Zen. Mm-hmm. How do I enter this world of Zen? And the older monk pauses and says, do you hear the waterfall off in the distance? And then at first the younger monk is like, no, I don't. But then he's, then they pause, then they breathe, then they turn on the senses, just like we've been talking about. And then the monk finally says, I do, I do hear the water off in the distance. And the senior monk says, enter the Zen from there. Mm-hmm. Like from this stage, from this place of a calm mind and an attuned heart and an open senses. But what many people don't know is the second half of that story is after a few minutes have passed, the younger monk is like, well, what if I didn't hear the waterfall? And then the older monk says, enter the Zen from there. (laughs) (laughs) 
So those challenges, those are what we call grist for the mill. That's part of it. Like looking at our resistance to being present, including in the times in our life when we feel a certain amount of discomfort in our bodies, like lean into that discomfort. When you say you're unhappy with your body, um, where does this unhappiness come from? What does it feel like when you are unhappy, what sensations in the body do you associate with that unhappiness, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes there's sinking feelings in the stomach. Sometimes it's tension in the shoulders, like go right into that. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that that unhappiness is impermanent like everything else. And then by going into it, suddenly it releases its hold on us. I think that what you're really speaking of there is the difference between reaction versus response. Mm. And, you know, you're you're not saying it explicitly, but like what I'm hearing is it's the difference between the, two, the the nervous system states of like being in sympathetic and running away from discomfort and moving, mm. you know, basically like, like your actions throughout your day is just you moving further and further away from each discomfort and like almost playing whack-a-mole. It's like, okay, <laughs> so I've got the, like, I'm tired. So here's a cup of coffee, whack that mole. And then now I'm, you know, jittery. So here's a, you know, drag on the <laughs> pipe and there's another mole, you know, mm-hmm. but when you are able to like accept that discomfort as it is without trying to change it or manipulate it or create a story around it. And instead ask your body, like, what are you trying to tell me right now in this moment? What do I need, what do I need to pay attention to? That gives you a chance to like actually respond versus react. And, um, and I think that, it goes when we're in that nice parasympathetic state of being able to respond, that's where all the magic happens. Mm. That's where Mm -hmm. connection happens. That's where intimacy happens. That's where play and bliss happens, you know? And I think that the difference between bliss and joy for me is like bliss is that like deep sense of peace and alignment and just being in the flow versus joy feels like a flash in the pan. Like it, of course it's joyful to, to be in reaction sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. I spent my twenties partying too. (laughs) And, um, but like, it's like this unsustainable, like unitchable, like unsatisfying, sort of joy like there's always got to be more and more and more whereas bliss feels like like you can drink from that cup forever you know absolutely you bring up so many important points so just saying to what you were first um expressing is absolutely we are looking to respond to our situation rather than react like from our spiritual perspective this is what it means to become awake right not to be guided unconsciously moving from one state of reaction to the next. Mm -hmm. And you've probably heard that Viktor Frankl quote that between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And within that space, there lies our freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to cultivate in our meditation practice, in our presence practice, is what we would call the sacred pause, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where we stop and then we notice. 
And then that little space, that little pause allows us to insert what matters. We are able to respond with our intention, with what we care about. We are able to respond with compassion and understanding rather than reactivity and anger. And absolutely, it ties directly into our nervous system response. So the sympathetic nervous system, I think of that like it starts with an S. So that's when you get surprised because you see a snake. Ah! <laughs> and uh, that's the flight, fright, freeze response, right? And this is where most people are at. We're in the, like a highly activating stress village society people are responding with chronic stress all the time and then we slip to the pns which is our goal the parasympathetic nervous system response and that has a p so i think that's the part that says please calm down it's okay and it's often the rest and digest it's often described as the rest and digest part of it right but i prefer calling it the feed and breed (laughs) So you were like, that's where intimacy happens. That's where connection happens. Exactly. That's where the feeding and the breeding happens, at least for evolutionary ancestors. Um, And indeed, when we do get in touch with like greater depths of our being and greater aspects of our being, we do find a more lasting feeling of, as you would say, bliss rather than like passing momentary pleasure which is how most people kind of operate they kind of think if they get enough material satisfaction in their life then they'll find the happiness that we seek right but we know as spiritual practitioners that nothing lasts that your new car will break down and your new house will will decay so we do seek for that longer lasting as you would say bliss right in the Upanishads it says uh, passing pleasure or perennial joy which one would you like? And it says the wise man knows that there's a perennial joy and, or as you would say, the bliss that is available to us and it comes from the inside rather than passing momentary pleasure from the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's, I just sort of want to like take a pause and speak to the person who may be listening right now and, um, and maybe like fairly early on on the personal development journey, the spiritual journey, and just wanting to identify and and see where, I guess the entry point, the portal, the gateway can be. And like, we're talking about, you know, meditation and, you know, presence. And I think that when I first started on this path, I had this idea that it needed to look a certain way. You know, like I had to sit in meditation for a certain amount of time, or I had to, you know, like basically approaching spiritual practice as like another to-do list because that's all I knew how to do. Um, And I think I just want to drop in and say that sacred pause that Zach is talking about here is it can literally be a breath, you know, Mm -hmm. it literally can be just a beat as long as it is with your full consciousness and with intention, it doesn't have to look like you sitting on top of a mountain and meditating (laughs) for 30 minutes, because Mm -mm. that's not at all what my, you know, intention practice, my spiritual practice looks like. Sometimes it does, but not always, particularly in these like modern times that we live in. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Like the sacred pause can look like savoring. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like the next meal that you eat, the sacred pause, all you need to do is turn your phone off, <laughs> look at the food that's entering your mouth and taste it, <laughs> right? Because, you know, most people, they sit down to eat, they open up the phone, they turn on the television, get the magazine out, right? Um, they don't taste, they're not in their bodies. They're not tasting what they're experiencing. You finish the meal, like, how was it? what was what the meal what meal oh right i ate this meal i wasn't even like involved in the entire process um so it's profound but it also it's also quite simple right in all the ways we can bring in the sacred pause into our life yeah and that simplicity is not meant to like downplay the importance of it because i see this so often where you know that that exact example that you just gave is like well i wonder why i don't have a good relationship with my food now you know or like we don't remember to build in sacred pauses in our romantic relationships and it's like okay so why am i disconnected from my husband you know we forget to check in with our children Um, instead of just shuttling them back and forth between soccer practice and ballet practice. And we wonder why there's so many tantrums, Mm. you know, it's because we all have this like deep, deep longing and craving for connection and intimacy. And that can only be done through these sacred pauses. And, um, and, you know, biologically we are wired our nervous system is wired to want to connect when we're in parasympathetic, you know, as you said, like that feed and breed mode. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily think about breed as just being about sex. It's really about attunement. And um, I was reading this. Uh, I don't know if you've read Deb Dana's book about polyvagal theory. Um, it's excellent for any practitioners out there that she was sharing in that book that our ears are actually attuned differently to pick up different sounds, depending on the the sympathetic state that we're in. Mm -hmm. So when you're in that sympathetic, like fight or flight mode, your ear is attuned to listen for high pitch noises. Like if something is in distress or low pitch noises, like if a predator is moving through the leaves to get to you and, um, And then when you're in parasympathetic, it is more attuned to that middle range, which is where human voices are at. And so you're actually able to better hear your partner. You're better able to hear your children, your friends, when you're in a parasympathetic state, because even like the inner workings of your ear is attuned for connection and belonging in that mode. And that just like that little piece just blew my mind. And Mm. I was like, oh, like this is why I could be saying the most neutral thing um, when I'm in an argument with my partner and he might interpret it differently is because he's hearing it differently. He's actually physiologically hearing it differently than I'm saying it, you know? Mm. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was a fun Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest insights I've found in the spiritual path is this idea that like we don't see things in the world as they are. We see things in the world as we are. (laughs) You know, what we see in the world is a reflection of ourselves, our own conditioning, our own beliefs, our own thoughts about these things. Um, You might have heard the phrase that like when a pickpocket sees a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. (laughs) Right. Or like, you know, attention goes where energy flows. 
And of course, this applies to past conditioning. Also, if you believe in karmic conditioning, things like this. But it also reflects just a very real reality that of where we are in the present moment. So absolutely, when our stress response system is activated, we begin to scan the environment for threats. You know, this is this is rooted deep in our evolution. And uh, when we're scanning for threats, um, evolution also wired us to uncover um, false negatives or no, false positives. So like if you were just in the woods and you heard a rustle of leaves, it would serve you to just assume it was a threat. Mm -hmm. um, rather than if it wasn't because the yes. one in a hundred times that's going to save your life. Yes. Right. Now this is very different when you're just like talking with your partner. Right. And if you're, if your stress response system is activated, you will be analyzing their tone of voice, analyzing their, their words, and then interpreting them in a totally different way. And similarly, when our stress response system is activated, like it shuts down. Um, our higher cortical functionings. Like we say that we flip our lid when our limbic system takes over. Yeah. Um, it literally will shut down our ability to empathize, our ability to see another person's point of view. Um, so when you are arguing with your partner and you're like, I feel like you're not even listening to me. And it's like, it's true. They are not listening to you because they are unable to. Yeah. And that in that case, it can really just help to take a break come back 10, 20 minutes later after you've both cooled down in order to actually be present and then receive each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which I think is a really great way to talk about co-regulation. You know, um, that pause has been something that has never felt safe to me in relationships. Um, mm. Being a little bit more on the anxious end of the attachment spectrum. Um my personal fear is that like the people that I love are going to end up just leaving me. And, mm -hmm. and so that pause feels like a threat. Like you're talking about, you know, I'm scanning for threats and any sort of separation. And, you know, I've done a lot of work around this, but it feels like any sort of separation between me and the people that I love feels like a threat. And so then my alarm bells go off and then I'm pushed into the sympathetic nervous system, but that sacred pause has been the most important tool mm. in communication because it's in that sacred pause where, and for me, like it's, it's something that I have to do with my body. Like it's not good enough for me to just be like, okay, like let's put a pin in this. And then I just go sit in a room for 30 minutes. Like I have to go for a walk that really helps like me bring it back to the parasympathetic where I can actually attune to my partner's voice again, where I can attune to what he may be trying to tell me um, in a way that's more neutral versus threat-based. And, um, and that, that gives us the capacity to be safe containers for each other. You know, mm. I think that um, there's, there's a lot of push to co-regulate with each other before we're ready to, mm -hmm. you know, like there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot of um, talk out in the attachment community where it's like, we have to attune and you have to show up and you have to, you know, be there. And nobody talks about the importance of actually not being there of like mm -hmm. in, in a healthy way, mm -hmm. you know, doing that little separation, go and, um, 
and allow your nervous system to, to calm down so that you can come to the table and co-regulate with each other um, and, and actually communicate versus look at each other through veiled sympathetic responses. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, as I mentioned, like the pickpocket that sees a saint only sees saints pockets. Like we have different lenses that we view the world through. Mm-hmm. And a huge part of that can be our attachment styles. As mm-hmm. It's amazing that you have this awareness that like you're a little bit on the anxious side and it's going to skew your reality in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you understand that, you can notice it and then come back to the place of love and connection that you're seeking. Mm-hmm. And that's the first step, right? On us, for us all on the path of relationships, of even loving ourselves, is first just understanding, understanding the, the dynamics that are at play mm-hmm. and understanding where, how those dynamics are at play within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can change and, and move beyond them. In meditation, we talk a lot about this idea of real but not true. And that like, yes, your thoughts that you're having right now, your emotional response, it's very real. Like it's, you know, if you're experiencing anger around something, for example, this is a very real emotion. But is it true? Does it reflect like the truth of what is happening like out in the world? Is this an appropriate response to be having? And sometimes it is, right? Like, yes, if you're walking down an alleyway and you see someone hit the end and they have a knife in their hand, that's when that flight, fright, freeze response um, is good. You can mm-hmm. kick in. But most of the time, um, it's a real response, but it doesn't accurately reflect the truth of the situation. So if mm. your partner does say, hey, I'm a little emotionally flooded right now. I'd love to have a break from this conversation. Can we return back to it? And then you feel this like, what? Are you leaving me? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, this is real, but not true. Mm-hmm. It's not an, it's not an accurate appraisal of the situation that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a practice and it's mm-hmm. not easy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then on the flip side of that is if somebody is a bit more on the avoidant end of the attachment spectrum, you know, the the threatening thing is actually moving towards your partner <laughs> when you're in conflict, yeah. right? And so, you know, I know that like me and my partner have had to do a lot of work around. Are you in a bit of a, the anxious avoidant uh, yeah. dynamic? Yeah, they, they always find each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We do, but like in that finding each other, there's been so much medicine, you Mm -hmm. know? And so a lot of the work that, um, that we've had to do has been around him communicating when he's coming back, because what he wants Mm -hmm. to do is run away. He just wants to get away from the situation and avoid it. And, and so it, it allows for both of our nervous systems to feel safe when he's able to communicate that. Um, because he gets to have the space that he he needs and he's claiming that for himself instead of stealing it. And mm-hmm. then I get to have the reassurance that he's not actually leaving me and that we can work through this, but just not right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's an important tool that comes about when you have that sacred pause um, and when you can get to a place where you're, you know, your heart's not beating and your pupils aren't dilated and you're scanning for, (laughs) 
for the threat who's who's actually your partner who is a human being doing the best that he can you know yeah yeah there's that dialogue in the therapist's office where one person says but i love you and the other one says don't threaten me (laughs) (laughs) and absolutely you know people with avoidant attachment like the idea of getting closer the idea of commitment is very scary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's real, but it's not true. And it's amazing that you and your partner have an understanding of both of your dynamics at play and are able to honor and recognize it and also ask for what you need in the situation. That came with a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we talked a little bit about the evolution of the nervous system, you know, and we we are wired for connection as human beings. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about in your experience, you know, having spoken to so many experts on on relationships and connection and intimacy on your podcast, what what do you find is the biggest, like, is there like a common denominator in terms of like the biggest struggle that most couples have, if you could like distill it down to one or two points? You know, that's a big question, huh? <laughs> um, on the one hand, it's a very big question. On the other hand, there is something just deep and universal to human nature is that, um, we are caught up in this realm of duality, right? We do feel like ourselves to be a subject in an objective universe, Mm -hmm. right? We feel like there's this I in me that's in here and there's this other that is out there. Mm -hmm. So every relationship is that balance of independence and connection. Mm -hmm. Every relationship is this colliding of two worlds of two people who have their own hopes and dreams and fears and desires and aspirations and also understandings about the world themselves and what it means to be in a relationship. And then it's like an intersection, right? Of how these two people meet and interact, right? And and whenever I think of the intersection of two people, I also think about how when Esther Perel was talking about polyamorous relationships, she was mm-hmm. like, sometimes there's way too many intersections and then it's like a multi-car pileup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which doesn't say that, you know, that open poly relationships are a totally valid way of being. Um, but then obviously it gets exponential when you're dealing with three, four, five, six people and their needs and desires and boundaries and expectations and whatnot. Um, but it all boils down to this idea that like we want to be connected and we want to be our own selves. And it's this 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 push play, right? Our mm-hmm. desire to be alone and our desire to feel connected. And one metaphor, and it's a little clunky, I, I'm trying to find a better way to think about it. But in general, we want, um, let's just forget like dissolving into oneness for a second and just focused about like a healthy relationship is we want like a healthy interconnected network and not just like a blender 
<laughs> I like that. <laughs> like when people say like we want connection, like you know, we want to like really be like a one together. It's like, yeah, but do you want to all dissolve like everything about yourself? It's like, no, we want, you know, what Dan Siegel calls differentiation, differentiation and integration. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. when we talk about like connecting mind, body, and heart. Right. Mm-hmm. Is we want to use being the heart as you know, when it's absolutely um we want to be in the heart whenever we can. But of mm-hmm. course the mind is a great tool to yeah. use whenever yeah. we need to pay the bills. Right. <laughs> so in the spiritual sense, we want to remember the blissful nature of our own being and where we last put our keys. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> we have like different parts of our being. We want to keep it there. Um so so too, absolutely like any relationship is not having no boundaries at all. It's having healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm, it's having mm-hmm. a solid structure and as well as a door and a window and windows that allow, um, you know, the activity that you want to happen. Yeah. Yeah. The word that kept coming up for me as you were speaking is safety. You know, like when you're talking about blended states, that feels really unsafe. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking about integration and connection connectivity like that feels really safe it's this idea of you know having the independence and the intimacy and striking that balance and of course that balance is going to shift and change over your lifetime together maybe even on a daily basis but that that feels like I don't know like that kind of relationship sounds so safe I think mm. is is what I the word that just kept coming up. No, absolutely. Like relationships, they obviously meet a lot of our needs, right? And our need for connection and need for sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays in the Western world, like we expect our partner to be like our bank account and our therapist and like our chef and like our yeah. maid. Um, but people forget like the one of the most fundamental and important needs of any intimate relationship is exactly as you said that need to feel safe mm-hmm. need to feel comfortable um in the relationship mm-hmm. and one of the greatest mantras is just telling your partner i'm committed to create a loving and safe relationship for us both mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and it's so true i think esther perel um once said that like we expect our one partner to mm-hmm. take on all the functions that an entire village used to yeah and um and so there is more of from what i see as an intimacy and relationship coach like there are more relationships where the blended states is being more celebrated just because the nature of you know we expect our partners to do and be all for us but that comes at a price like it it's not just this like happily ever after where now like we get to just invest heavily into this one person and then like ta-da like we have this like fantastical fairy tale relationship it is so so important to be able to hold your own sense of self like capital s self um Mm. as a major component of that relationship You know, I think that something that my partner and I talk about a lot is there's actually three players in our relationship. There's me, there's him, and then there's our relationship. Mm -hmm. And depending on 
the needs of the moment. Like sometimes, you know, the hierarchy and the structure of it means that like, I need to have my needs met first versus the needs of him and the relationship. And then it's going to switch. And sometimes it's going to be him. And then sometimes it's going to be like, we need to prioritize the relationship, but it is this like fluid, constantly changing dance, which I think is, you know, if there's anything that we can learn from Eastern philosophy, it's that like we evolve in cycles, nothing is ever fixed. Yin and yang is always in flux and always in motion and always in like interrelationship with each other. And, um, and so that, that coming together, that colliding that you were talking about, you know, that, that collision piece, like, right. The convex right there in the middle, um, sometimes needs to be prioritized and sometimes it needs to be put like, you know, sort of lower on the scale, just depending on what the needs of the the circumstances are in the moment. Absolutely. You know, you bring up that every relationship is a polyamorous relationship because there's <laughs> the relationship of two people with each other and the relationship each person has with themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And all of those relationships need time and energy and to be nurtured. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, studies show consistently that in sexually satisfying relationships, typically, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but typically both partners also masturbate on their own. Um, Because if once you're comfortable with your body and you just discovered all the amazing things that your body likes, Mm -hmm. then you come into that relationship with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And each relationship needs time. And so absolutely... You know, just as strong fences make good neighbors, so too strong boundaries make good relationships, making mm-hmm. sure that we have time for ourselves to recharge, time to take care of ourselves so that we can be fully present in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And it is true that, like, particularly in the spiritual path, there is this huge idea of what it means to, like, become nobody, basically to like drop out of our egoic sense of identity and sometimes in tantric circles that talk about like, you know, melting into oneness and becoming one and different things in that regard. But it's important to kind of differentiate like where that happens on the path. And the general idea is that you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. Mm. And that like, if you don't, if you have like, poor self-esteem, low boundaries, low sense of self, um, that dissolving into into oneness or emptiness or even fullness, depending on what lineage you're talking about, is not going to work out the way that you want it to. Yeah, because you'll just get swallowed up in that energy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is... there. Um, does come that that firm sense of who you are, what you want, your path, your purpose, your mission on this planet. Um, and then you can think about what it really means to discover like a not man or egolessness like on your path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to circle back to um, what you were saying about couples who masturbate on their own, like often have better uh, sexual connections together. And I think that this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning in terms of like, we explore our world through our, our, our somatic experience, you know, and there's this like 
just because you're in a relationship does not mean that you have to lose that somatic experience with the self because that's where your sexual experience likely first started, you know? And so to say, I'm going to deprioritize this connection that I have with my body, um, you know, I think that that can trickle out into other aspects of your life. You know, you start to lose what it is that you like to even eat. You know, you start to lose what is it that you Mm. like to do? What are your hobbies? Like, who are you outside of the relationship? And something that I talk about with my clients all the time is about making sure that you still have a relationship with a single version of you, even when you're in a relationship with somebody else, with your partner, because that single version of you is still needing to be tended to and is still needing to like explore their world in the ways that they need to explore their world. And um, it it is a balancing act, but it's a necessary part of the equation of the, you know, I hadn't really ever thought about um every relationship being a polyamorous one, but it's true, you know? Um, Yeah. You bring up a lot of really important points. And I just want to say that like one of my least favorite phrases is that you can't love somebody else until you love yourself. (laughs) And I even saw like a very extreme version of that quote, (sighs) which is no one will love you until you love yourself. Mm. (laughs) That's really mean. Yeah. Um, there's a few reasons I don't like it. It's like, first of all, actually, like a lot of um, our understandings of self-love do stem from our upbringing and early on and how yeah. we were loved, right? 100%. And so a lot of folks, you know, were not treated very well mm-hmm. by their primary caregivers or whoever was taking care of them. And they have a sort of distorted view of what self-love is. Mm-hmm. And it really diminishes, this quote really diminishes the power that loving relationships have. And when people do learn to love themselves and treat themselves well, when they enter into a healthy, loving relationship and somebody's like, you're amazing, like you're beautiful, you deserve happiness and orgasms. Let me help you get those. And (laughs) and then you're like, yeah, I should. And so, you know, loving relationships can have a really transformative effect on how we view ourselves and how we treat ourselves. So it's not necessarily that like you can't love somebody else until you love yourself. Um, But more just that, the more you love yourself will increase the quality of your loving relationships. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that is part of loving yourself involves getting in touch with what you want Mm -hmm. and also establishing firm boundaries about behavior that you will and will not tolerate in your life. Right. So if you know what you want, it's a lot easier to communicate what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And then so if you do have self-love, you're more likely to, to ask for what you want, express mm-hmm. what you want. Mm-hmm. And when you have firm boundaries, you're more likely to uh, set them, not be walked over in relationship. And also people with strong boundaries have higher quality relationships because it kind of forces our partner to step up to the plate, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. If if I have high self-esteem, I'm going to say, I deserve love. I deserve a partner who listens, who gives back when I give, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, sexual pleasure or whatever other area of the relationship. 
And then if I'm in a relationship where a partner doesn't do that, I ask for it. And if they still don't, then I find a relationship that does. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is very affirming uh, when you recognize that you do deserve love. You deserve all the love your heart can handle. Mm-hmm. You won't tolerate negative, yeah. quote unquote, toxic, trying to avoid that term or just p- poor relationships in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I completely agree. And I think that because so many of the wounds that we have around relationships were created in relationship, particularly in our childhood um, relationships and caregiving relationships, they have the capacity to be healed when we're in relationship as well, you know? And so to say like, you have to work on yourself and make yourself as good as possible um, before you get into a relationship. Like that feels really, you know, I think you use the word diminishing. And 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 in my experience, that that has not been true because, you know, there's going back to attachment styles, like there's a reason that I have always been drawn to avoidant men, you know, mm. and avoidant partners is in, and actually like early on when I was dating and, and I would have somebody who was not avoidant, like they just didn't seem as interesting to me because there was this part of me that needed to be healed that could only be healed through working this out with somebody who, you know, pinged on particular wounds of mind and, mm-hmm. and giving me opportunities to show up differently in those relationships so that I could create different patterns and create different you know, neural pathways for safety. So I think that to say, hey, I think saying, you know, you have to love yourself before someone else can love you or to be loved in relationships, like, like for the person who has a scarcity mindset, like they'll, they'll never be in a relationship then, (laughs) you know? Yeah. There's like, um, this is, I love the dynamics you're describing and there's kind of like two ways to approach it. There's like the pessimistic one and the optimistic one. Okay. And the pessimistic one says that, you know what, a lot of people um, enter into relationships and unconsciously choose their partners because they're seeking to heal those childhood wounds, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you had a person who neglected you mm-hmm. as a child. Mm-hmm. You're going to, as an adult, choose a person that, neglects you like an avoidant person in hopes that through your actions you will turn them around and get the love that you didn't receive as a child and to heal those wounds Mm -hmm. right so this is something this is a real dynamic something that happens but obviously it results in a lot of really challenging relationships for Mm -hmm. folks that's like kind of the pessimistic one the more optimistic one which i prefer is that there is no better container for healing and growth than an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And yes, in, I find I talked to a lot of therapists and they would wholeheartedly agree to a point because obviously having a specialist who deals with certain conditions yeah. um, can be really, really helpful. But guess what? A therapist is someone you see once a week, twice a week maybe, mm-hmm. but a loving relationship is somebody who is with you day in and day out wanting you to become the best version of yourself, loving yourself into being, accepting yourself just as you are in this mm-hmm. moment and giving you the connection and kindness and belonging that you deserve. And in that container is where some of the most profound and transformative growth happens. 
could not agree more. It's, yeah, I feel like that's, that's the little nugget that I want people to walk away with mm-hmm. is, is this deep knowing that profound healing can happen in intimate relationships and you don't have to be quote unquote good enough to, to deserve one. Like you can do the work of, of personal development, spiritual development, healing intimacy wounds, like while you're in a relationship and that's 100% a possibility. Um, And, and, and to be honest, it's like both partners get to heal in that dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just, it's not just one, like the anxious partner is going to work on their wounds. It's like the avoidant partner also has wounds that, that needs to be supported and needs to be met differently and have a different, um, experience so that their nervous system can also learn how to regulate and, and rewire some new pathways for themselves too. Absolutely. You know, and there, there is a lot of talk. We're bringing up attachment theory again and again, and it's, it's a lovely and amazing paradigm um, that people should understand. Um, but the really amazing thing about it is that it can be easy to think, wow, like I was raised by my parents for the first 18 years of my life. Like mm-hmm. how much unpacking am I going to need to do? But the studies show consistently that often all it takes to shift from disorganized, avoidant or anxious attachment to more secure attachment is one, one healthy, loving mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. And you can rewire your brain and not uh, fall back into those old patterns again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that the the piece that's important to highlight there is like that you are an active participant in that dynamic. Um, mm. While I agree with you that attachment theory is a very lovely paradigm and, and people should know about it. One of my my pet peeves about attachment theory is that a lot of the books their advice, their the thing that they tell you that you should do is go find a secure partner if you have identified yourself as being an insecure partner, which I think is bullshit. Because <laughs> 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 it's like, then you're externalizing the solution again, you know? Yeah. Um, and so for anybody who's I'm going to call out a book, like anybody who's read attached, like that's one of my biggest (laughs) criticisms of that book. Merely mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of my biggest criticisms of that book. And it's like, yes, take all that theory, take all that research. And you have the capacity to do the work yourself and work on your specific attachment pattern. Um, a lot of this can be done with the support of a coach, a mentor, a therapist, um, oftentimes having that professional non-biased context helps you um, neutralize it a little easier. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that this is not about going in and finding that magical puzzle piece that's, that's going to complete the picture for you. It's about, okay, so in whatever relationship that you're in, how can you show up in a more secure way and then bet, be met with more security in that process, you know, regardless of what the other person's attachment style is too. 
Absolutely. I, re- I remember reading the same thing in attached and I was like, you, you're slowly getting like, what do I do? What do I do? And then towards the end, it's like, just find somebody who's securely attached and yeah, you'll be it's fine. Like- it's like, <laughs> um, absolutely. But there are other ways, right? Even meditation is sometimes described as spiritual reparenting, <laughs> right? Or like there's a lovely guided visualization exercise I even sometimes do, which just involves you imagining yourself as a child and like this is a visualization, right? So you imagine yourself in a room, like as a child, you're experiencing a challenging thing. And then your adult self walks into the room, holds you, gives you the love and affection that you need. And it can be really transformative. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, there's other routes mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. changing one's attachment to be more secure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Zach, we have meandered through the forest of, <laughs> of intimacy and connection and spirituality and attachment theory and co-regulation and nervous systems. Like this is such a dense episode. Thank you so, so much for bringing all of your wisdom. And something that I appreciate about you is it comes from a really embodied place. You know, like I feel like, mm-hmm as as we were talking it's like oh yeah this is not just stuff that he's like got shoved up in his brain like this is stuff that he <laughs> he's actually processed and worked through um experientially so i appreciate whenever i get to uh speak with anybody any human who's able to to really extend that that energetically and that really came through for me so mm. thank you so much for showing up Thank you, Kat. Been really enjoying our conversation. You're such a good interviewer, just guiding it along. And I wish I could say, like, you're right. I'm all embodied, nothing but living from the heart. But I'm on the path, just like you. And it's yeah. this journey of 18 inches, they say, sometimes can take many <laughs> lifetimes going from the head to the heart. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the journey, practicing each day, just like you. And just like I'm sure many of our listeners are and many of your community is, it's, as Ram Das would say, we're all just walking each other home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always just seeking to cultivate these qualities, cultivating what I think of as the garden in our mind, mm-hmm. just every day, mm-hmm. planting those seeds of kindness, compassion, understanding, love, watering them a bit, watching them grow. And then you're like, what? Like self hatred? What are you doing? Like that weed? <laughs> <laughs> Pull out the weeds. Yeah. And I thought then, I took care of you already. <laughs> exactly. I thought <laughs> we were done with you. Um, but yeah, the anger, the issue, the ill will, like, you know, um, it's all part of it. Um, yeah. Just take out the weeds, start to grow a little mm-hmm. bit more day by day. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for showing up. And I'd love for you to drop in with how our listeners can find you. Yeah, I'm super easy to find. My name is Zach Beach, C-A-C-H, and Beach, just like you, walking a beach. So you can go to ZachBeach.com and find me at Zach Beach Love on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I'd love to connect with anybody here who resonates with any of the things that I said today. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And um, thank you for any listeners who tuned in. And we'll see you soon. we are wrapping up I just want to send out a few pings of gratitude out there 
first of all, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of our community. And if you would like to support our project, you can find us on patreon.com. I would also like to send some thanks out to Mayan Kites, who creates original music for our podcast, and for Andre Lagasse, who produces these podcast episodes. Thank you.